Let us come before God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This past week I was away in Perth for two nights at the Church of Scotland's first five years and ministry conference. Uh, and yes, we did get snow as well. The conference is open, as it seems to any minister in their first five years, and it gives us newbies time to be together, time to get support, time to get some input on the dynamics of modern day ministry. Of course, as you would expect when we're there, we try and put the world aright, particularly the church. And uh, maybe it's because of that, and because of all that talking about the life of our denomination this week, that I'd like to invite you to discuss a question with your neighbour. What one thing would you blame for the current predicament of our national church? What one thing would you blame for the current predicament of our national church? We didn't discuss this at the conference, but uh, it does do the rounds amongst people, not just ministers, I'm sure. And so, if you're willing, there's pressure to do so. If you're willing, turn and have a chat about that for just half a minute or so. Over to you. It's a topic you could talk about for a very long time, so I'm not going to let you keep going too long. <laughs> so you can continue the conversation afterwards if you, if you, if you wish, obviously. Uh, the reality is that in all likelihood, every answer, I suspect, has probably played its part. And many more could probably be added to the list, and things are probably even unaware of. Our passage today, the second half of James chapter 2, doesn't offer us a silver bullet to our situation and it doesn't give an exact diagnosis of where it all went wrong. But I do think it poses some questions to us and as we wrestle with those questions, there could be lots of points of application that we can derive from the passage and yet they all centre around one key issue, one key issue which James drives home with four illustrations, and it is this. Faith without deeds is dead. He's been building towards it over the course of his letter, but now he repeats it effectively in four different ways. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without deeds is useless. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And finally, faith without deeds is dead. And there's nuance there in the middle, and we'll get to that in a moment. But he has one key issue that he is trying to get us to hear and, and take on board, and he gives four illustrations to really hammer the point home. So illustration one, verses 14 to 17, and James outlines here a scenario where a fellow Christian is in need, whether through lack of food or clothing, and he probably begins with this because in the earlier verses he's been speaking about the poor. It's on his mind. 
In the scenario, James imagines someone else within the Christian community replying to such a poor and needy soul in this way, saying simply, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but they do nothing else about the physical needs. It'd be like you and I saying, well, mate, off you go, try not to worry, keep warm, eat plenty. It's just empty words. And so James asked the question, what good is it? Now, James isn't just meaning what good is it to the poor person. Obviously, their basic needs are not even met, so it's of no good, it's no benefit. But James is primarily highlighting of what benefit is such faith to the individual who spurned the poor believer. For James writes, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And here is a predicament that James wants his readers and us to grasp. If we claim to have faith in the Lord Jesus, if we claim to be a Christian, but then have no specific action, no distinctive lifestyle flowing from such faith, well then, that faith is dead. It is of no good, for it does not save you. And then James probably is, is getting to this point because of, what, again, what he wrote just a few verses earlier in verses 12 and 13 about God's judgment, which we explored last week. We saw last week that apart from the forgiveness and mercy available to us at the cross of Jesus, there's no escape from judgment. It's only when we ask God in faith to forgive us because of the death of Jesus, it's only then that we come into right standing with God, forgiven of sin, the slate wiped clean. It's only then that we're saved. But if we claim to have such faith, if we claim to have such status before Almighty God through Jesus, then as we saw last week as well, it should leave its mark. Our lives should display His love and mercy. Conversely, a faith which appears to make no impact on your life, if you, even though you may be able to confess true and right doctrine, and you may be a church member and you come every Sunday, but if your faith shows no mercy, if it shows no fruit, then James says it is no good. You may be potentially not saved. You may remain under the judgment of God. For in all likelihood, your claim to faith is as empty as a poor man saying, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed. So let me ask you this, friends. Do you claim to have faith? Do you claim to have faith? And if you do, what can you point to in your life where your faith makes a difference? whether in your life or in the life of others. Let's, for example, just take James's reference to the poor and not gloss over that. Where is your faith costing you more than just nice sentiment to the poor? It's easy to become jaded to such needs. It's easy to come up with excuses. I know this myself. Um, the disadvantage, if you might call it that, of having a, a house behind the church is that they know where the minister lives. And so people come knocking at the door now and again, and they say, can you help me? I need some food, I need some money, I don't have enough for electricity. And in that moment, 
the question arises, does my faith make a difference here? Or is it merely words? James reminds us that a claim to faith which has no impact on your life, which stirs little mercy or compassion, that is dead faith. It is of no good. Your faith is just empty words, and empty words do not save. So what does your life reveal? What does your life reveal? Is your faith alive or dead? James moves on to illustration 2 in verses 18 to 20, and he introduces an imaginary interrupter. Someone's got a question, and they're jumping up, James, 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 I've got a question for you. And these verses have proved complex for interpreters and commentators alike to engage with, because if you go to original Greek, there's no punctuation. I thought I was bad at English. There's no punctuation in the original, so you have to wrestle with it and figure out where in English am I going to put the punctuation so that the text, the argument still flows and makes sense. And I think the, the NIV does, does a good job. Uh, its form is, is shared by some other translations as well. And, and so it's led to some commentators uh, positing the idea that what we have here is not someone who's hostile to James, but someone just seeking clarification about his argument. We could well imagine, I think, someone saying, James, you know, you have faith and I have deeds, but, but both are equally valid methods, no? They're equally valid methods of, of showing genuine Christianity, don't you think, James? I mean, come on, brother. We're obviously not against um, being unmerciful. We're not, against, we're not for un, being unmerciful. It's just that, well, some of us do the deeds of mercy and, and other of us encourage those that do the deeds of mercy but they're both surely still equally valid, James, are they not? And to such an interrupter, someone who wants space for both, James holds fast, because faith without deeds is useless. It is dead. His reply is very much like what he said at the beginning, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Because faith without action is just empty words. It's just a claim. It cannot be demonstrated. But then he takes it one step further, for he says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder, you foolish person. Maybe James thinks of the interrupter coming up with another argument. And maybe they're thinking, well, you know, I believe this. Quoting from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so James responds with a quip. I was hearing earlier today that uh, Charles Herriot was pretty good with his quips. He's quick on his feet. Maybe James is a bit like that. Just responding quick off the mark. And he says, well, that's all well and good, friend, and very accurate, but, you know, even the demons believe that. They know that to be a truth. But here's the thing, friend, says James. The demons believe it. They know it to be true, and yet they still live in rebellion towards God. For the next verse after what you quoted is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that's something a demon will never do. Though at least they shudder, for they know the future that awaits them. 
And so James responds with, you foolish person. You're a fool because you're like the demons. You're no more saved than the demons because your faith is no more than what the demons have. It has not led to loving the Lord your God with all your being or loving your neighbor as yourself. Your faith is useless. It is dead. Friends, when faith is true, when faith is living, we each have to face up to the reality that we are broken people. And the Bible's term for that is we're a sinner. And we don't like that, but it's just a reality. But with, with faith, with living faith, we can, we can face up to that. We can look in the mirror and see some of the reality. And rather than it causing fear, rather than a shuddering like the demons, instead you come into a place of forgiveness and peace. You come to know, as I was saying to our young people, you come to know yourself as a child of God, reconciled to your heavenly Father, still aware that, that you're imperfect, that it was your sin, my sin, that led Jesus to be crucified, that he faced divine wrath because of me, because of us. But when you come into living faith, you come to see the love of God at the cross, that for love he died for you. And so in response to him, you live in love. And in that relationship of love, all fear goes. You don't shudder like the demons. Friends, is your faith living? Can you look in the mirror, face reality that you're a sinner, deserving of judgment and wrath, but, but knowing that because of your living faith in Jesus, you're forgiven, you're reconciled to God. Do the words of the old hymn echo true for you? Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Does the cross of Christ, does the cross of Calvary stir in you fear or joy? Is your faith living or dead? And it's at that point that James switches tack and goes into illustrations three and four, giving two positive examples. And why he mentions Abraham is really anybody's guess. A couple of ideas suggested in the commentaries include, well, he's writing to a Jewish audience uh, Christians from a Jewish background. Maybe that's his reason. It could be that he's aware that the early church based their argument for salvation by faith alone on the passages in Genesis about Abraham. But for whatever reason, he switches tack. And it's at this point that we find some people wondering if James contradicts the teaching of the Apostle Paul. For James summarizes his message about Abraham this way. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. But Paul said, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Luther wanted to chuck out James from the Bible because of such a contradiction, by such a maybe even unclear teaching, wording. So is there conflict here or is something more going on? But well, what we need to remember is James and Paul are writing at two different periods of history. James was, was probably first. And they are writing to deal with different issues. Paul 
is fighting against false teaching that something has to be added to faith for salvation, particularly obeying the, the Old Testament law. But James's scenario is very different. He's not saying we have to add something to faith to be saved. He's not even saying that, that faith by itself is deficient. I know that we can maybe think that when it says in, uh, in the middle there that Abraham's faith had to be made complete, verse 22. We can, is he saying faith is deficient? That's not what he's saying. All he's saying is that living faith always results in, in a life changed, in radical obedience, which is what we see in Abraham's life. His willingness to follow God's commands to the letter by being willing to offer Isaac in sacrifice. That showed Abraham's faith to be real. And by his obedience, his faith matured. It was made complete. It was given fuller meaning as it was put to the test of obedience. And Paul's not against that. He writes about it all over his letters. For example, Galatians 5, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul also argued for a changed life, a life that loved God and loved neighbor because of faith in God. So Paul, I think, would affirm everything James has said. Simply, James looked at the experience of Abraham and saw there the willingness of Abraham to express his faith through obedience and that obedience ratified his claim to a living faith. Because living faith should lead to radical obedience or it is dead. A similar point is brought home with Rahab. For though she was different in nearly every way from Abraham, they both had a living faith that was seen in their lives in faith that led to radical obedience. She would give aid to the Israelite spies and she would be risking her life and even risking the life of her family to do so. But living faith is more than just a private transaction of the heart. It is an active, costly obedience to God such that at personal expense we share in the purposes of God holding nothing back from Him. So here's my question on this for you. Where might God be calling us to radical obedience? Where might God be calling us to costly risk-taking as we put our faith into practice? Where is God calling you to share in His purposes today and not simply give a verbal claim or a claim to come just on a Sunday as a, enough as a Christian. And you might, we all might come up with different ways to apply that. But if I could draw maybe upon Rahab's experience a little, where are you serving the purposes of God? Where are you serving the purposes of God? And maybe this comes to mind because if it's not every month, it could very well be every week. I'm hearing of the need we have for volunteers, extra volunteers, to sustain and develop our many ministries. At present, we're needing help with 
um, Friends of Jesus, the Sunday School, our uniformed organizations, but I'm pretty sure every group within the church would value some new help. Whether it be even on welcome team or helping with refreshments after the service. Everyone is, is crying out for some extra help. Now, this year we as a congregation have, have responded sacrificially towards the purposes of God with our finances. And we rejoice and give thanks for that. I am blown away with how generous you have been as a congregation. But we need to serve as well within this congregation with what we do as a congregation. And I'm sure as I say that, there may be some queries coming to mind. You might be thinking, well, what about this scenario? And what about that scenario? And I can't respond to every scenario. And what I'm going to say is very generic. So please try and give me some grace about it as well. But I wonder whether first we might say, well, I serve elsewhere already, Scott. Like, I do this, that, and this outside of the congregation. And that's good, and I'm not belittling that. I'm not. But there's a part of me that says, if God is doing something here, and if we want to see the folks in our parish come to know God and grow in their faith, then we can't give. We need people to invest here as well. And I'm biased, but that's part of my job, to call you to the purposes of God here in this congregation and what we do as a congregation. We need everyone to play their part. And maybe someone needs to to think about that and weigh that up. It might be that you don't stop what you're doing elsewhere, but maybe someone that is appropriate for someone. Secondly, I realize this could be a dangerous point to raise. You might say, I'm too old. Please don't shoot the messenger too much. And I realize there comes a stage where that is a reality and you cannot do what you used to do. So I'm not, not targeting that. But if we could gather 10, 20, 40 people, because over half our congregation probably is of a more senior age, but if we could gather folks together, say, and pray, not necessarily together, not necessarily out loud together, but if you were to say, Scott, you know, I can't do what I used to do, but I will pray. And here's my name, and you can give me some prayer points once a month or maybe more often. Imagine what 10, 20, 40 people praying consistently might do amongst us, might do amongst our parish. And that would be such an encouragement and such an underpinning to what we do, to how we serve the purposes of God here. I've mentioned him before, Dick Anderson, my friend. Um, he's in his 80s now. Um, since the last time I mentioned him, his wife, Joan, has passed on to glory. And, and Dick is still sharing his faith with his neighbours. Um, you'd expect a missionary to be like that. But he's praying for me and he is praying for us, even though he's not even part of this congregation. So if you're too old to do, 
could you sign up to pray? And thirdly, there might be that group of us that say, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I've got this to do and that to do, and between this and that, there's just not the time to do anything more than come on a Sunday. And I'm aware, trying to be sensitive, I'm aware that there are times when things just happen. I've been there myself, and you don't have any more time. And so if you are in those, those circumstances that are very severe, this isn't for you. Just tune out for a minute. But some of us need to hear this challenge. Because the example of Rahab and Abraham is that they were willing to count the cost. They were willing to make space for the purposes of God, sacrificing something else to fulfill what God would have them do because they put their faith into practice, because living faith does that. It lives radically in obedience towards God. You may have something else you want to query on, on this idea, but drawing things to a close, thinking back to my earlier question, there's really no point, I think, at times in blaming the past. We can, of course, learn from it. But I think our focus needs to be more on, on today. On what are we going to do? Because, because if a church, if a congregation could arise where all had a living faith accompanied with radical obedience, then that's a body of people that would see the kingdom of God come in their midst. They would see lives of poor people transformed. They would see the dominion of darkness raided and people coming in to faith. And they would see life blossoming around them. So I wonder if we are willing to resolve to be such a people. A people of living faith. That we might then share in the purposes of God today. So is your faith dead or is it living? Let us pray. Father, where things are of me in that, would you just blow it away? And what is of you, Lord, would you take deep into our lives? that we would truly be disciples of Jesus and all the world would know it, and that we would see your kingdom come in our midst and we would see lives changed and communities changed and even beyond this community changed, Lord. Lord, we want to dream big, but we know you have no plan B. It's through your church that you're going to bring your kingdom. And so we need to respond. We need to come with true living faith. And whether that be in prayer, whether that be in action or words, Lord, it has to go beyond maybe what we're comfortable with and maybe beyond what we've previously been willing to give. And now we need to take that next step. And so I pray that we would all know that, Lord. What is that next step for us? Where are you leading us on the journey of discipleship? For we say, lead on, Lord Jesus. We are yours. Heart, body, mind, and soul, we are yours. So lead us on.
For we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.